0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday, with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the June 14th, 2022 podcast. In today's podcast, we're gonna discuss the potential enactment of a global minimum tax, and how that could affect equity pricing of community development tax credits. Now, those of you who listened to last week's podcast, a new market's tax credits and target populations, you might be thinking that this podcast was supposed to be about Lisa County. Well, we pushed back the Lisa County podcast one week so we could discuss the global minimum tax this week and its potentially far-reaching adverse consequences. Many listeners to this podcast may not be aware of international efforts to ensure major global companies pay a minimum level of income taxes. Still others likely have heard of the issue but are unclear of the potential sizable damaging adverse effects on community development investing. I'll begin the podcast by providing an overview of international efforts to enact a global minimum tax. Then we'll get into more discussion with my partner, Brad Elphick from our Atlanta office as the steps we can take, steps we are taking to attempt to mitigate the potential adverse effects. The global minimum tax proposal is being led by the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development The OECD, and is part of a two pronged plan, a plan that more than 130 countries have agreed in principle to support. One prong of the plan, which the document calls a pillar, would allow governments to tax the world's largest and most profitable firms based on where their goods and services are sold rather than where they are based. The second pillar is what we're going to discuss today. The second pillar, or pillar two, would create a system to ensure that large multinational enterprises pay at least a 15% minimum tax on book income. Now the enforcement mechanism is a unique and creative idea to ensure that all countries are incented to adopt a 15% minimum tax. The proposal includes what is referred to as a top-up tax under the proposal. To the extent a company has income sourced to a country that does not have a minimum tax rate of 15 percent Other countries are allowed to charge a top-up tax, such that the multinational is paying a 15% tax rate in each country in which net income is sourced. In short, countries that adopt a plan would charge additional taxes, a top-up tax, on the net income of a multinational that is sourced to countries that have not adopted the minimum tax. This top-up tax concept creates an incentive for non-compliant countries to comply so that they can claim the tax revenue that otherwise would be claimed by other countries. By at least one estimate, the global minimum tax proposal, if enacted, would generate about 150 billion in additional tax revenue across the globe. So where are we in terms of implementation? Well, it hasn't been implemented yet, but last December, a 70 page model rules document was released. And then in March of this year, just a few months ago, A 220 page commentary on the model rules was released. Now, by rough analogy, you can think of the model rules that were released last December as equivalent of, as of a statute. And you can think of the commentary that was released in March of this year, as it's the somewhat equivalence of regulations. And as of today, we next expect additional implementation guides to be set forth by the OECD and the European union is considering approving the package. Now, the goal is to have the rules take effect in 2023, though that date appears to be slipping. And I should also note in addition to the European union, considering approving the package, maybe by the end of this month, more likely in the coming months, the U S is also firmly behind adoption of these rules. Now, with that as background, let's turn to how a global minimum tax rate of 50% could affect investment in community development tax credit equity. As noted, the goal of this international effort is to ensure that corporations pay at least a 50% tax on book income. So the simple question is how do U S community development tax credits affect the calculation of the determination of this 15% tax rate and corollary or derivative questions are. Is the minimum rate calculation determined after a company reduces their taxes by US community development tax credits or before? And another question is the calculation determined by excluding investments in community development tax credits? These are the questions, some of the questions that companies face. Now, when discussing community development tax credits, we're principally referring to the low housing tax credit, new markets tax credit, historic tax credit, and renewable energy tax credits. And also any future credits that might be enacted, like the neighborhood homes investment credit. I further note that loan compensating tax credits and renewable energy tax credits are getting the most attention right now, as those credits have the greatest potential to move the effective tax rate needle, given the volume of annual tax credits in those areas. New markets tax credits and historic tax credits are affected, but they're less likely to move the 15% needle, if you will. Now, it may be obvious to many, but it is worth emphasizing that this issue arises because the largest investors by dollar volume in U.S. community development tax incentives are multinational corporations, which fall under the umbrella of the global minimum tax proposal. For those corporations that are under the umbrella of the global minimum tax proposal, an investment in tax credits could reduce their effective tax burden to less than 50%. And unless there is some mitigation, those corporations have to pay additional taxes in other countries. And those additional taxes could reduce the benefit of their tax credit investments, which of course would lead many current investors to invest less and to potentially sell existing investments. This issue is one that we at Novogratz have been tracking for a while. When we reached out to the Biden administration last year to inquire as to whether U.S. Community government tax credits would offset, the proposed domestic minimum tax, as well as this proposed global minimum tax, we did consistently get a positive yes on the domestic front and a nerve wracking if you will, or a concerning silence on the global minimum tax. The somewhat positive news now is that many stakeholders have been tracking the issue and efforts to address the issue have ramped up after the rules document was released last December along with the equivalent of the regulation that were released in March. Many participants have been working with the U S department of the treasury to try to find a way to retain the value of tax credits for international investors. Novogradic is among those organizations working to find ways to mitigate the adverse effects and my partner, Brad Elphick, who is with us on the podcast today is leading Novogradic's efforts on that front. As I said earlier, Brad works out of our Atlanta office. If you've attended one of our New Markets Tax Credit Conferences, if you were there at the conference we just had in DC last week, you've probably met Brad, but he also works in other areas, including affordable housing. He's been a guest on Tax Credit Tuesday several times, most recently in January of this year, when we talked about generally accepted accounting principles concerning tax credit equity investments. Brad is also the principal author of a white paper that Neurogratic has published on the matter of the global minimum tax and tax credit equity investments. Today, Brad will join me to unpack the global minimum tax proposal and its possible effect of tax credit equity investing. We'll look at the potential problems and some potential mitigations for the tax credit equity investment issue. We'll also examine the next steps for this proposal and what listeners can do. There's a lot to talk about, and this is a complicated and important issue. So if you're ready, let's get started. So Brad, welcome back to Tax Credit Tuesday. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be back. So in the opening. I gave a somewhat lengthy overview of the global minimum tax proposal and the potential issues for various green development incentives. If adopted, if the global minimum tax proposals are adopted, tax for investments could be deeply affected by this proposal to the negative. But as with many things, there's lots of details to work through to better gauge the real effect. Now I did describe the issue in my introductory comments. And before we move to possible approaches to mitigate the adverse consequences, I wanted to see if there's anything more that you wanted to add to my introduction to amplify or further clarify some of the challenges. Well, first, it was a,
1: a very good overview, and extremely detailed. A couple of things I would add to it is just reemphasizing the importance of the issue. And, and as you mentioned on the tax equity markets, And when most people listening to this podcast think about what impacts, they te- typically think about it in terms of price. And I think that's ultimately what, you know, the, the largest concern here is the impact on the value of these tax credit investments that were created to incentivize and investments in, in different types of communities. And ultimately the concern is that if they have this reduction in in the value of this tax, credits, we may not see the level of investments in low-income communities and renewable energy and, and for other purposes as we've seen in the past. Ultimately, you know, I, I think that it's important to recognize that this could impact all of the different types of tax credit investments. And so if people are wondering, you know, why do I care? I think that there's, there's a lot to care about here. And I think it's helpful the more that people understand this because it is ever evolving and ultimately one of the scary aspects of it. And we'll talk a little bit about it from a policy perspective is that there's an incentive built into, into these model rules, as you described them for companies or countries to adopt the model or the global minimum tax. And so it doesn't really matter if the U S adopts the global minimum tax, it will still have an impact on these multinational corporations, which is why we, we continue to follow this regardless of what we may hear from time to time in terms of it's like, like adoption by the U S
0: that's a great point about the U S not having to adopt compliant rules in order for U S tax credits uh, equity investments to be affected. Also, some will suggest, well, it's not supposed to take effect until 2023 or later, so to really need to focus on now. So maybe you could comment on the impact these rules could have in the equity investment market and the timing as to when the equity investment market might respond to the potential risks here. Yeah, that's
1: the big question I have. And my concern is that we are getting a lot closer to when it may start to have an impact on price. As we've seen in other downturns, downturns of the uh, uh, current economic environment and such, pricing tends to get out in front of those changes or out in front of something becoming officially adopted or officially implemented. And so my concern ultimately is that with uncertainty or certainty that it is negative, you know, either of those I think can have a downward pressure. As investors are going to be required to look internally, just to plan for this. And as we know with these different tax credit investments, there's a long horizon and uh, we're not just looking at, you know, the next six months, it's typically tax planning for a much longer period of time. And so, you know, I, I think that's my, my concern is related to that uncertainty and its ultimate impact. So with the implementation potentially being in 2023, maybe we can talk about that later of whether or not I actually think that's when it will happen. but. Um, as we've seen with any kind of tax changes, even domestically here in the US, the, the closer you get to the end of the tax year or even after the tax, it, it becomes a lot harder to prepare for. And so there there would be a significant burden, I think, as the longer that this goes and gets closer
0: to this potential
1: implementation year.
0: And I think it, it in many ways is similar to the issue we faced when Donald Trump was elected president and there was anticipation of a lower corporate tax rate the equity market is pretty quickly adjusted. Those credits, like the log of the tax credit that was heavily driven by the, or influenced by the value of tax losses, no anticipation of a lower corporate tax rate caused investors to hedge in terms of the pricing because they didn't know if they could, what the benefit of those tax losses would be. So here, similarly, if there's a, a potential mitigation that companies feel they can rely on, then the equity markets can end up not being adversely too dramatically adversely affected. But if there isn't a belief among corporations that there are mitigations, then you'll start seeing equity price effects well before anything is enacted. But will be more, like you say, these credits are multi-year investments for the most part. as a consequence, companies have to make multi-year estimates. So it's definitely something that we have to be out in front of, which is one of the reasons why I know that you helped draft the memo on some of these issues, but let's now talk about some of these mitigations. There've been several possible approaches to potentially mitigate the adverse effects of a proposed global minimum tax on U S tax equity investments. So if you could maybe briefly run through the handful of approaches that have been discussed in some detail publicly by different parties, including us. And then after you run through briefly. A couple of the, a few of the approaches. Uh, we can dig into each one in a little bit more detail. Sure. I think there's really three main approaches that have been explored.
1: And I put those three approaches in, in kind of two different buckets. One is what can Congress do? And then what can the OECD do? The, the governing body of these models. And so the first approach that we've discussed or heard discussions about it is The notion of refundable tax credits and whether or not in in terms of of those being excluded from these calculations. And we'll get into more about what refundability means, but typically our U S tax credits are not refundable, especially the ones that we're talking about. And so there's some concerns there about refundability. The next one is. When you look at our general business credits and and tax credits that we're accustomed to, a lot of times they're referred to as transferable or investable tax credits. And one of the approaches is, well, can we get that included or can the OECD clarify that those can be included as refundable tax credits and be treated on the same level as refundable tax credits? Now that would be one that would require most likely a, a change by the OECD possibly a a rule change, which would be, I I believe, much harder at this point, or potentially the form of guidance, but it's unclear at this point as to exactly how that could occur. But then there's the third one that has probably gotten the most attention, which is a, an approach that looks into the rules that have been drafted and finds a way to mitigate them. And this is what we commonly refer to as the equity investment exclusion approach, and that would be one where in order for these multinational corporations, these investors to get comfortable with would need
0: additional guidance from the OECD. So Brad, thank you for outlining the three broad categories, refundability, transferability as the equivalent of refundability and the every investment exclusion approach. Now let's dig into each one in a little bit more detail and let's start with the refundability option. Under this option, tax credits have to be refundable within four years. And if they're refundable within four years in substance, not just in theory, then they get a more beneficial treatment in terms of the tax rate calculation. Now, as you noted, in order for that to happen, legislation has to be passed in the U S to make these various tax credits refundable. And obviously the president would then have to sign that legislation. So if you could share with the listeners how practical uh, that option is, both from a political perspective, a policy perspective, and a budgetary perspective. I I think I can say
1: pretty confidently in in terms of all three of those, it's probably the least like, as you've alluded to, changing the, the current tax credits as we have them to become refundable would be a, a, a major sea change. And I think trying to get Republicans and Democrats to agree on that in the current political environment, and we, can, we don't really have to get into what the current political environment is, but it's not one necessarily of a lot of bipartisan efforts. So in order to get a legislative fix of that nature, I think from a uh, political perspective would be very difficult. I think that there's a lot of arguments for why it would not be a favorite from a policy perspective either there have been many discussions over the years about why the current form of tax credits is a better model than having refundable tax credits so i think that from a policy perspective when you talk about abuse potential abuses and and government's ability to essentially reclaim any funds that were provided through that kind of structure i think would be be of a hard sell and then if you did have refundability, refundable tax credits, that would be an immediate additional uh, cost to the federal government, which would, I think, be not insignificant and, uh, you know, question is the money really even there to, to change these tax credits to become refundable? So, you know, when he's asked from a political policy and cost approach, if i put them on a spectrum, I'm putting them on the end of least likely to occur.
0: I certainly agree with that. As our listeners probably could tell the way I framed the question, I will also note that initially treasury and the white House's response was to go down the refundability approach and for the reasons that you outlined and I outlined in my question, it it wasn't a very pragmatic answer. I will note in terms of the policy behind refundability. There's definitely a large support for creating a refundability aspect to say renewable energy tax credits. And, you know, we at Novogratic are supportive of those efforts. But when we talk about policy benefits of refundability or lack of refundability across all tax credits, that's a more challenging uh, question. And certainly one that ought to be, the whole refundability question ought to be driven by policy reasons. It ought to be driven by the fact that there's some international, you know, general business or minimum global, minimum tax, or some other cost considerations it ought to be policy wise. Is this the preferred option? I mean, that should be what was, what leads the debate, not some of these other issues, but let's I, I would
1: just add one thing too, about the, the kind of political landscape and, and your note about that was an initial reaction. Uh, was, well, let's just make them refundable since that is included in the model of rules. And I think that just highlights the level of concern that we've had for a while. And the concern of how much attention has been paid to how these model rules may impact the tax credits, and tax equity investments. Right. And th- the fact that that was the first response I think, or one of the initial responses just shows in my mind, the kind of some parties being late to, to the analysis here. And again, is probably why I think that
0: our late political perspective, it's, it's the least likely uh, outcome. And the good news is that Treasury Department now has leaned in uh, pretty aggressively on other approaches and we're thankful for the approach that the Treasury Department is taking uh, at this time. So let's talk about transferability because we've talked about obviously the refundability. And there is also the notion of saying, well, if refundable tax credits are treated differently and not as adversely affected as uh, general business tax credits might be subject to these other approaches, the fact that you have investable credit, they're not technically transferable, but they're investable where a party is entitled to the credits and they're able to bring in investors that in essence, give them equity for the benefit of those uh, tax credits, as well as other tax incentives, along with you know, a economic interest beyond the tax benefits, that's pretty close to being refundable in the sense that they're investable and they're not technically transferable, but the economic benefits are from the standpoint of the project that needs the capital, they're getting the economic value from those incentives in terms of cash. So how practical is this notion of saying, "Well, well, we're gonna get the transferability aspects of these through investability treated as equivalent to refundable?
1: I, I would say that it it is a, li, uh, a little more likely than having Congress change the current tax credits to becoming refundable. However, I think when you look at these model rules that have already been published, the iron has been struck in terms of the framework. I think that there are a lot of positions that, well, if you wanted transferable or investable credits counted the same as refundable credits, The US should have negotiated that before the model rules came out. There was an opportunity. And with the notion that you have uh, a lot of other countries that have essentially signed on to this notion of refundable credits being excluded and that it may not have ever been the intention for it to include the types of tax credits that we're describing. I think it becomes a, a lot harder sell to get them included at, at this juncture, I'm not saying it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's impossible,
0: right. but it's yeah. a little bit harder. So it's, it's still a heavy left, but not as heavy a left as the U S Congress making credit for fundable. And I did want to also say for the bit of our listeners, I should have said this at the opening, a lot of the ways you and I are describing matters from a purely technical perspective could be subject to critique, but we're grossly simplifying (laughs) a lot of these issues, as a consequence, some of our language out of context could be, could look at and say, well, that's not quite right. And we recognize that. It's just, it's a difficult topic to address in a short forum like this. And one example of that, that Brad's aware, is Brad just mentioned, that You would exclude qualified refundable credits. You don't technically exclude them when you walk through the calculations (laughs) as Brad knows, but it gets a more favorable treatment that sometimes you might colloquially think of as being excluded or not as as not being adversely affected because of the way in which they're treated. So just know that as you're listening to this podcast that we're taking a lot of uh, colloquial shortcuts and that's something that is inherent in an oral conversation versus a written conversation. And when you read our paper, you'll see a lot more of the, the, you know, more specific non-colloquial discussion. (laughs) So let's uh, turn now to the the sort of third option approach that's currently getting the most attention. And and I certainly don't want to say these are the only three approaches that we're covering here today. And a lot of this, there's a lot of wood still to chop here, and we don't know how these various interpretations will go. And I also don't want to suggest that the interpretations that we're discussing here are the only ways to interpret the rules. These are reasoned interpretations, but they're not the only possible interpretation. And that's one of the reasons why we have a whole discussion that we're going to go into in a bit about the, what more we need from the OECD to build out and reinforce uh, these interpretations or let us know that these interpretations aren't accurate so we can act uh, accordingly. Because what's most important is that we know how every country is going to treat these investments so we know you know what the impact would be for investors and that might help inform to what degree the u.s support these rules uh, as they're being expressed so all of that as a a precursor to the central topic really of the podcast and of the uh, working paper that you led took the lead in drafting Brad is what's referred to as the equity investment exclusion option. I'll say that again, equity investment exclusion option or approach. So Brad, if you can explain that option or approach or interpretation, because it's really not an option in the sense that you get to once again, in the sense that you get to elect, it's more, uh, an interpretation of the existing rules. And how that interpretation of the existing rules could help mitigate concerns around the 50% global minimum tax.
1: Of course. And, and I think that's exactly right. It's an interpretation that we hope at some point is affirmed in, in writing. But the, but the reason why we got to this approach is because of what we just discussed about the other two approaches and how likely they may or may not be. And so when you take a dive into the model rules and the commentary, we started looking at what framework is there that we could work with to ensure that there's favorable tax uh, treatment for our equity tax credit investments. And so first just starting where at the base, the foundation, I guess, for determining the effective tax rate is to look at an entity's book income or their on a consolidated basis. And so as entities are preparing their financial statements under a gap or IFRS or or, uh, other acceptable methods, they would be looking at that from a consolidated entity. And so when we look at investments accounted under the equity method, they wouldn't be consolidated as we've discussed. And so when we look at the rules and and model rules and the, the commentary associated with them, they're is specifically, uh, exclusions of certain types of gain or loss, including excluded equity gain or loss as a defined term. And this defined term excluded equity gain or loss, uh, is defined as profit or loss in respect of an ownership interest included under the equity method of accounting. So that's how we get to the starting
0: point of this equity method exclusion. And just to a- clarify that. Sure. Entities determine their 15% effective tax rate on a consolidated basis. And as part of the adjustments to determine their effective tax rate a consolidated best investment basis, they exclude entities accounted for the equity method because those entities are not consolidated. They're, exc- they're under the equity method. So maybe now you can talk about, okay, if you exclude those entities under the equity method, then presumably you would, you eliminate both the income and loss effects as well as the tax effects. And maybe you can build off of that.
1: Right. And and that's part of the interpretation is that th- this exclusion would include the tax effects of those income and loss items. And so ultimately, you know, as we noted in, in the paper that the 15% rate would be determined before any reduction for tax credits and other tax benefits. And this will protect the value of those uh, equity investments in the tax credits and It would not have a change in the value of those tax credits, even if a corporation using the equity method exclusion approach and has a tax rate below 15% would have to pay a top up tax. There would not be a detriment to continuing to invest in tax credits because they're not ultimately the types of investments that are reducing the overall effective tax rate. And so when we look at investments in general business tax credits, notably the ones that you described, Litech, Noble, Historic, New Markets, those are typically structured using pass-through entities such as partnerships and LLCs. And as preparers of those financial statements, they're required to evaluate whether it should be consolidated. And since these investments are typically not consolidated and are accounted for under the equity method of accounting, we get to the kind of the conclusion of our interpretation is that those. And equity investments would be excluded and not have a not cause a reduction in the effective tax rate. And so that that's and, and very briefly, and as you mentioned, go into more details in, in in our paper that we've put
0: together. But ultimately, that's an overview of the equity market exclusion. No, that's good. I mean, I just think of it more simply as you basically would look at those consolidated financials as they are now, and you would pull out all your tax credit equity investments, uh, under this exclusion approach. And as a consequence, any income or loss blowing through from those equity investments would be pulled out and any tax credits or tax costs associated with those investments get pulled out as well. That's the simple, and it's almost like a sidecar calculation. And the beauty of that is even if what remains is still below a 50% rate, such as the top of taxes do. The economic benefit to the company of investing in the tax credits is preserved. So that's one of the, you know, attractions of this approach, which, you know, as you noted, you know, is a reasoned interpretation of the rules as they stand today. Now, there are some questions I'm sure our listeners have now when they hear about this equity method of accounting and, you know, they'll say, okay, I understand the equity method of accounting. I understand that under the uh, model rules, they generally speaking, get excluded. But for long cash tax credits, uh, they're often accounted under this proportional amortization rule. Uh, and we don't need to go through the details of how that rule works. We can assume the listeners know what it is. And then there's also with renewable energy credits, there's this hypothetical liquidation at book value or HLBV rules. And the questions I know that we've gotten is, to what extent is proportional amortization or implementing HLBV rules, to what extent are those treated as equity method of accounting, such that they would qualify under this equity method of accounting exclusion.
1: Sure. And, and, and I think the important thing here, just to note is that both of the, the proportional amortization method, HLBV are all codified, uh, subsets of the equity method under U S CAP. And so when you go in to look at the codification of, of equity method, you can dive into, to it and find proportional amortization in HLBB. And so, as you mentioned, it's still a question of, you know, okay, that's great. The concern is that what everyone who created the model rules understood and intended, and that that's ultimately why in addition to the guidance about the equity method exclusion and getting our interpretation affirmed, I was, would be the best case is also to affirm that equity methods as understood under US GAAP uh, includes proportional amortization and HLPV. And so we think that there's, because of them being subsets that should be the
0: reasoned interpretation. So thank you for that. And once again, I would uh, direct our listeners to the memo uh, that we have or the uh, paper that we have on our website dealing with these issues. Cause there has been a lot of positive commentary Uh, coming from the OECD and treasury officials and the like, with respect to these interpretations, so there, you know, it it does appear that, you know, many agree with this, analysis, but one question that has come up that you and I have discussed quite a bit, Brad, is what's called the joint ventures rule. And the equity method exclusion approach, basically takes away the equity method or the investments accounted for in the equity method out of this determination of the 15% minimum tax rate. But then there's this joint venture rule that has some potential separate application to uh, investments accounted for under the equity method. So maybe you could explain, you know, when the joint venture rule kicks in, what types of entities are subject to it, what it's intended to do. and you know, how that might apply to uh, tax credit investing in the U S.
1: Sure. And then I think it is important to start with what is a joint venture and a joint venture is one in which an entity has 50% or greater ownership interests and, and rights. And the concern was, and I think the intention for the joint venture rule was to prevent companies uh, from shielding income from this global minimum tax by forming entities in low tax jurisdictions and then excluding the income from such entities under the equity method. And the, so when, when we look at that as a, it's a preventive measure focused on companies moving their income to low tax jurisdictions. Well, we have to also look at, okay, well, if we have companies that are making these investments typically at 99% or some very high percentage over 50%, would those be considered joint ventures and preclude those entities from using this equity method approach that we described.
0: But not really preclude, they would cause the joint venture itself to uh, be subject to the rules and they could end up at, so that it's not so much exclude or not exclude. It's more that there's a whole set of ways in which the global rules apply to joint ventures that cause the investor in the joint venture under the equity method to pay, uh, to be subject to a higher uh, top-up tax.
1: But I think mm-hmm. the key, is, yeah.
0: the key as, you, as I know you're about to say, is that the US uh, isn't considered a low-tax jurisdiction. So the joint ventures need to be operating in a low-tax jurisdiction. So even if they are joint ventures, the, the general view is that Since the U S isn't, wouldn't be considered a low tax jurisdiction, the rules wouldn't have adverse effects. And there's other analysis as well with respect to joint venture rules, but I feel like those are probably the two keys that lead us to get past the joint venture rules. And if those analysis isn't enough, there's additional backup analysis or other potential ways in which you would view this to not have an adverse effect. Is that the sandwich of venture rules, or should we move on to? Portfolio?
1: Yeah, no, I think yeah, you, you're exactly right. I was getting to the point that after at the end of the day, we're the U.S. is not a low tax right. jurisdiction, and that's the probably the most important part when we we're looking at these joint venture
0: rules. So the other issue that's come up is the portfolio shareholdings, and maybe you could describe what a portfolio shareholding is and what the concern has been, and then the fact that this issue probably isn't, too, doesn't have too dramatic an impact irrespective of the answer. Sure. A, a portfolio of shareholding is an ownership interest in any
1: that uh, carries rights to less than 10% of the profits, capital reserves, or, or, or voting rights. And when simplified, I think the overall rules were intended to include anything consolidated Except and exclude everything else like those investments accounted under the equity method, except for when you there are joint ventures as we discussed before and portfolio shareholdings, and so because of this kind of concern similar to joint venture rule is a notion of well does this somehow capture any of the types of investments that are made for tax credits and. We don't really believe that it has a large impact because if you're less than 10%, I have an ownership of less than 10%. We're probably not talking about that much of the volume of transactions that are done and also the impact on the calculations that an entity would have from an investment in which they held something less than 10%. So ultimately, I think there is a question about portfolio shareholdings and The ability, if you do follow under this portfolio shareholding provision of whether uh, of how the equity method
0: exclusion would be applied, right. Um, So, thank you for that. And as you mentioned, the key point here is that the portfolio sharing rule kicks in when you have less than ten percent of the profits capital reserves or boarding rights in a given you know, equity investment, or in a given investment, I should say that may or may not be accounted for under the equity method of accounting. And we don't think it should be that significant to investors, because if you're investing at that level, you're, it's probably not having that dramatic an impact on your effective tax rate anyway. And as you noted, it's unclear to what extent, if you're accounting for it under the equity method exclusion rule applies, You know, at a at an initial reading, the answer is yes, whether or not a final reading yields that same answers, TBD. So let's turn now if I'm an investor or project sponsor, I'm concerned about how the global minimum tax might affect my ability to invest or my ability to raise tax credit equity, maybe describe some of the next steps. And I ask it in a way that says, you know, if I'm concerned, but I think every investor or project sponsor should be concerned, <laughs> so they should be asking you know, so what are the next steps here in terms of, you know, would we, in terms of getting mitigations to the potential adverse effects. So equity investing isn't notably affected. Sure. And I, I think
1: that if we believe that the changing our tax credits to refundable tax credits or having transferable credits be the equivalent of refundable tax credits is less likely. That ultimately the next steps would be to get some kind of implementation guidance from the OECD that gives clear confirmation of these different interpretations that we've talked about, because I think without any and and not only just clear guidance, but also that, that the other countries that will be adopting this, these model rules will interpret these, these approaches the same way, and if they don't agree with that, that it would be better for companies to know that now. And I think that overall, yeah, obviously we want, uh, the guidance to come out to, to affirm this, but one way or the other, I think it's important for us as involved in raising tax credit, equ- tax equity, and or investing that this guidance is known and understood. And it's unclear, as you can imagine with 136, 130, some plus countries, there's lots of different opinions on some of these issues. And when we get into the notion of how this may impact U.S. tax credits, other countries may not have had the same understanding or interpretation that we have come up with. And so the importance of countries ultimately getting on board and adopting that same interpretation is an important next step. If there is a favorable guidance, I think that will do, will have a very positive impact in terms of the concern that investors have had on the global minimum tax and its impact on tax equity investments. So that I think that in our memo that we've put together, we've focused a lot on that guidance that is needed because I think that that's the, you know, a, a path forward to preserving the value of these tax credit investments.
0: I would encourage uh, our listeners to download the working paper and we'll link to the course in our show notes. But if you also just uh, Google Novigrad global minimum tax, you know, equity investments or something like that, it'll take you there. I'd encourage you to download the paper and share investors that you work with you know syndicators that you work with that are raising money from uh investors that are likely to be subject to these rules if they're enacted and also share it with your members of congress in treasury and express your concerns uh, and i also think as i know that you do that it's critical that we get very clear guidance from the oecd as to the uh, application of this equity method exclusion analysis to U.S. Community Development Tax Credit Investments, it's very important that there be clear guidance here so when this gets administered, if it does get enacted across a sufficient number of countries, that individual countries don't start interpreting it differently. We run the risk that we get unclear guidance from the OECD and then individual com- countries start treating this differently. And then we get a few years down the road and suddenly companies are losing some of the value of their tax credits and it's too late for us to adopt a different rule or a different approach. So it's very important that we get this very clear understanding. One of the ways to do that is through circulating our sort of working paper so that the issues are clearly stated. The analysis is clearly stated and others can either agree and say, we think this is the correct interpretation uh, or disagree and say, we don't think that this is the correct interpretation. We think this or this should be changed. So at least we're all aware of that.
1: Yeah. And I think that the socialization efforts that have been taking place have borne some fruit already. When you look at the public comments that treasury is making now versus before they're, they're definitely appears to be a greater understanding and appreciation for uh, the need to get that type of guidance. And then there's also been some good public comments made by the secretariat of the OECD about some of the questions, which is all great, but it also needs to end up, as you said, in clear, concise guidance that leaves little
0: room for interpretation by all of the other countries. An example would be particularly attractive. So thank you for participating here today, Brad. This is probably a little bit longer podcast than we typically do, but this is an issue of such wide application and such, you know, potentially damaging effects that it's really worthy of the time that uh, you've given it. And our listeners have those that have stayed with us for the full podcast. Before we wrap things up, I just wanted to see if there's anything else that you think you wanted to share with the listeners. No, I think that's it. It's an important issue.
1: It's a, it's an ongoing issue. It's an evolving issue. Who knows we may be getting on another podcast in a couple months to give more updates uh, on on this issue.
0: But no, I think we've uh, covered a lot here today in a short period of time. Great. Thank you, Brad. And please do stick around Brad for our off mic segment of the podcast, where I get to ask you some fun questions that aren't directly related to tax incentives. Uh, and I'll provide Brad's email address in the show notes. We'll also provide a link to that document. And I would encourage you uh, to reach out to Brad. And if you're not already a member of our new market tax credit working group, our, you know, gap uh, working group, or a number of our other working groups that encourage you to join one of our work, one or more of our working groups as well. And we're able to use the some of the revenue from our working groups to help fund efforts like this one here. So any support you can provide uh, one of the working groups, we'd appreciate it. So to our listeners, please be sure to tune into next week's episode of Tax Tuesday. My partner, Frank Buss from Dover, Ohio, he'll be here to discuss that Financial Accounting Standard Board's new lease standards that were implemented January 1 of this year. These new lease standards can have a major effect on any business uh, with an operating lease. And we'll break down the consequences for different tax incentives, such as renewable energy, the new market tax credit, store tax credits, and low domestic tax credits. So it's a podcast you want to make sure that uh, you listen into, and obviously make sure that your CFO and uh, controller are listening into as well. You can make sure that you're notified of that episode in each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Go to com/podcast to subscribe to and stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tasker Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Pub. Now I'm pleased to reach our off mic section where listeners can get some off topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So Brad, I'll start with this podcast being a great example of the need to stay aware of changes in your field. So I thought I'd ask you beyond Tasker Tuesday podcast, uh, how do you keep updated on what's happening? What's changing areas that you work?
1: Well, you, you took the words right out of my mouth I, think. <laughs> I, mean, I on tax credit Tuesdays, but I, I think I'm fortunate to be in a field and, and at a business that focuses on the ever changing landscape. And I think that, you know, I, I get a lot of my information, obviously from what we our efforts are in the policy space and in the technical tax and audit space. But I I am online a lot on various news uh, sources and just trying to absorb as much as I can. I never feel like I'm all the way there. And that's the great thing uh, about what we do is that one, you never always get all the way there. And just as soon as you think you are there, it changes. And uh, that's what the topic of. Of today's podcast was about it something that could possibly change and negatively impact and so what i have seen is the importance of staying on top of it because it's very easy to get left behind or it's very easy to not realize how something may impact and be able to plan accordingly for it so i don't know that i have necessarily a a, a one source to you know keep updated but i think that there's a lot of good information out there and lots of various opinions on information that I try to draw from.
0: No, that's all uh, very good. I also use uh, Twitter and I have uh, a very limited number of feeds that I follow. <laughs> so I, possibly- I like Twitter a lot. <laughs> so I find Twitter can be a way of getting some pretty targeted information areas of your practice. If you curate well, who you follow, <laughs> you right. well, who you follow, it's not quite as useful. So concerning your job, what do you know now? that you didn't know 10 years ago, but wish you knew 10 years ago. You know, I, I think that's a hard one.
1: I, and I think I've, I, I might've said something to this effect on one of our uh, off mic sections. I think every year I get a greater, greater appreciation for relationships, and especially professionally, it's very. Easy to say that accountants aren't the most extroverted people, and you know have a hard time talking to people. But I think it's definitely an important part of what we do. Being able to convey difficult topics, but also to develop you know working relationships. I think that when trying to grow my business and my expertise, I tend to get those from those who I have closer relationships with. And so that's that's why you do see me at a lot of conferences and visiting lots of clients because I am trying to, cultivate and maintain relationships, but um, I it's, it's a very important aspect in your personal life too. And yes. I think finding a balance so that you don't sacrifice personal relationships because of your professional desires or vice versa, I think is something that I probably didn't have a great appreciation for 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I've been going down this, this path.
0: Well, it's early COVID uh, and the lockdown truly really enhanced one's appreciation <laughs> for the value of uh, personal non-Zoom relationships. <laughs> I miss everybody
1: that <laughs> we had a people to see in person. It was good
0: seeing so many people this uh the last week in, in DC. Yes it for was a market conference. Yes it was. So the third and sort of final question I wanted to ask you is, you know, now that we're nearing the midpoint of the year, in terms of like goal setting, a lot of people set up, you know, calendar year goals. So that would mean you were getting towards the mid, middle of the year and it's you know time to be revisiting them. So how do you yourself track goals and would you revisit them and make adjustments? Tell me a little about your well, how beyond, your, uh, goals play in your life. <laughs> beyond <laughs> uh, lacrosse goals.
1: Right. Uh, <laughs> as a uh partnered accounting firm, we have lots of good spreadsheets to help keep it and review goals. So there's those obvious places too. But I don't necessarily focus on, okay, it's New Year's resolutions or, and, and things like that. I try to keep them a little more broad, but I, I try to uh, write them down, both my personal ones and my professional ones and revisit those in, in on a periodic basis. But I, I try not to, I, I try not to get wrapped up into, okay, yes, I met it or no, I didn't meet it. I, I try to look at the efforts that were made and understand whether or not those efforts were focused in the right to meet some of my goals. And what I find is that sometimes I feel like I'm really focused, but it's in the wrong direction. And, and revisiting those goals helps me refocus some of my energies. So, I, you know, I, that's the way I try to look at it. I don't, I'm not a list person per se. I learned a long time ago, I will never meet my uh, goal for how many books I want to read this year. <laughs> you know, so I, look, I, I look at it more just from a, Standpoint of my efforts and my energy and where
0: it's focused. I really like the focus on as opposed to outcome Mm -hmm. because there's so much that out there's so much chance in the actual outcome and effort plays such a greater role and effort gives you more chances for positive outcomes, but doesn't assure positive outcomes. And sometimes you can have positive outcomes. Purely by chance, right? <laughs> so you don't want to, so and you don't control chance. You can control effort to put yourself in more opportunities to be lucky. <laughs> uh, but I really like that an effort. And I know as a parent, I we, we always Barbara and I always focused on, you know, our encouraging our children to put forth the effort and right. try to be more models and encouragers of effort. As opposed to outcome, cause the effort was within their control. The outcome wasn't always within their control. So that right. definitely was a, a parenting strategy as opposed to my own goal setting strategy. So we're on the same page there.
1: Definitely. And I think that that's a great point about our children. One of the things, you know, when both of my kids were essentially born at that point in time, one of the things I always wanted to try to pass along to them is work out the, an effort yep. and it, you know, at the end of the day, as long as you Giving everything that you have, you know, I think, as you said, the
0: outcome becomes a little less important. So thank you again, Brad. And to our listeners, I'm Mike Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novograddick and Company, LLP. Archive podcasts are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.